Medicine is probably one of the most exciting fields where new technology can make an impact. But it's not easy to turn imagination into reality. Predictions that radiologists would be replaced by AI systems still haven't come to pass, and clinical staff are still inundated with work that could be done a lot more efficiently. My guest today is one of the people best suited to help solve some of healthcare's issues with technology. As a practicing cardiologist, Shiv Rao has personally witnessed how the state of healthcare today affects a doctor's ability to deliver the best possible care to patients. We spoke about how Shiv's experience in medicine impacts his understanding of AI's place in the field, why building and medical AI is hard, why some predictions about AI and medicine have been overzealous, how a bridge is innovating in the field, what future directions for medical AI might look like, and plenty more. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you have comments, questions, guest suggestions, feel free to leave me a comment on Substack or shoot an email to editor at thegradient.pub. But now, without further ado, Shiv Rao. Shiv, you're currently CEO of Abridge, which is a very interesting company in the particular moment in AI that we're all living through right now. You've recently partnered with a bunch of locations of the University of Kansas. From what I understand, this is kind of the first time or one of the first times bringing generative AI really to bear in the healthcare space. To build towards that, I'd love to understand a little bit about your background and how your interests in medicine started to come together with interests in AI. Yeah, absolutely. Super excited to be here um, and have this conversation with you. A little bit about myself. So I'm the founder and CEO of this company called Abridge. Prior to this, I was a, a corporate VC, like an investor for one of the large hospital systems in the country for UPMC. And I got to violate Peter's principle there so many times in, in five or six years. But I ended up being the check, check writer for their provider-facing portfolio of investments aimed at helping doctors and nurses in hospitals and clinics. So I had this incredible privilege to sort of ride shotgun with founders, be on board, to learn about technology, learn, a lot, learn about go-to-markets. And also in that role, got to invest capital into Carnegie Mellon University. We started a machine learning and health program. And in some ways, that's where a lot of the founding seeds, like the ideas and also some of the founding DNA for this company, a bridge comes from. A lifetime ago, I went to Carnegie Mellon as well. And in the middle, I became a cardiologist. So I still practice. I still see a, you know, a handful of patients every month, mostly just to stay close to the mission. It's such a privilege to still be able to see patients from time to time. And I also get this huge benefit. I get to use a bridge myself and bring those insights back to the team and hopefully build, measure, learn that much faster. Um, I think in terms of how I got into this space, I'd say, uh, you, you know, I want to say that it's just like chasing interests over time and at the end of the day, chasing impact more than anything else. Um, when I was a, a kid, like in college, like so many years ago, a lifetime ago, I remember being incredibly inspired by the story about an ophthalmologist who had given eyesight to over millions of people all by just dissolving or by, by designing this re revolving platform that he sits on where he does cataract after cataract after cataract. And it just seemed like this incredibly creative way of, of, of helping people at scale. And then I remember going to med school, like pivoting pretty late to wanting to be a doctor and going to med school, getting really bored, going to residency, getting really excited by patient care and always wanting more, like always wanting to impact more people than I could see in a weekly clinic. And at the time that meant I was starting to program in Ruby on Rails and making little web apps for for the residency program and experiencing some like peasant level of product market fit and it wasn't until i was in cardiology fellowship that i started to get really serious about wanting to live at this intersection of, of healthcare and technology i think where machine learning and, and ai became a passion was just through this relationship that i've always had with carnegie mellon and also through the investments that i was able to make into the into carnegie mellon as a as an investor at, at upmc 
got to sort of really get to know professors. Our chief scientific officer is Zach Lipton. He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon, does a lot of work um, at the intersection of machine learning and healthcare as well. And I've been able to sort of osmotically absorb, you know, um, ideas and, 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 you know, um, machine learning concepts, I think, through people like him over the years. And I think it became like abundantly clear how much of an opportunity AI has to just not just like assist and augment, but also automate so much of the inefficiencies in healthcare that can really make like the biggest difference um, in the world for the end user experiences of patients first and foremost, but also, you know, the care team around them. My understanding of the history of technology and the healthcare space is that it's been a fairly difficult one. You often hear complaints about the ways in which medicine has maybe lagged behind the times a little bit. And of course, there are lots of different things that might be hindering certain applications. You imagine HIPAA, of course, along with plenty of of other reasons. And so I'm curious as somebody who has witnessed some of this impact yourself, both on the side of being a cardiologist, but then also being a VC investing in companies trying to impact that space. What were some of the difficulties you saw and how did that inform how you wanted to start creating a bridge? Yeah, thank you. So I I think one thing that everybody has to have eyes wide open on about healthcare is that it's really hard. It's like a chess game that you're playing. You can't approach healthcare the way you might approach an enterprise SaaS opportunity in some other industry, and that there are multiple stakeholders who oftentimes have misaligned incentives. And so you're sort of trying to thread this needle to get something to work, to get that fit with the market. There are providers, and they have a certain sort of incentive structure. There are payers, the the insurance companies, who have a a different set of um, uh, incentive structures sometimes. And then, of course, there are patients. There's all of us um, and our families and how we think about our healthcare and what we're optimizing for. And so to me, like the really transformational solutions in healthcare, find a way to do the hard thing, find a way to actually thread the needle through all the constituents and actually put the end user experience, the the patient experience in the middle. And that's what we're pulling off right now, uh, knock on wood here at a bridge. So um, I think a lot of companies over the years have, have the companies who have inflected in healthcare Um, In some ways, you can sort of trace back to some kind of huge tailwind. And sometimes those tailwinds have been regulatory, where the government has made some sort of mandate around a certain type of technology or a certain type of data set. And that in and of itself can be really, you know, valuable if you're opportunistic, if you're if you're if you're agile enough to sort of take advantage recency bias here, but let's think about telemedicine and like the pandemic. And there were a number of companies who managed to inflect in that time by being able to very, very quickly like shift their center of gravity over to virtual care. Now, at the same time, um, there are also companies that have managed to take advantage of, 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 I think, historic moments in time where certain pain points have intersected with certain types of technologies. And that's the moment we're in right now. That's the kind of inflection moment that we're in right now that absolutely feels insanely historic. Because on one hand, you know, we have a tailwind around clinician burnout and labor shortages and staffing shortages. There's this huge supply demand mismatch. Burnout for clinicians, doctors like me, but nurses for sure as well is at an all-time high. The American Medical Association estimates that it's at least like 63%, but that's probably a gross underestimate. There was a New York Times piece recently covering research on how doctors actually require 27 hours a day to get all their work done. That's, that's a paper out of the Journal of General Internal Medicine. So we have this vicious cycle where, where healthcare systems also have this issue where they can't mandate more productivity out of their workforce. They can't like sort of squeeze what we call RVUs, their productivity measures out of these nurses and doctors because they're leaving the profession in droves because they've had enough on the other side of the pandemic. Hospital systems also seemingly can't buy themselves out of this crisis. They can't buy more clinics, buy more hospitals, use that leverage to gain not just footprint, but um, increase prices and make more money that way. And so you need technology. 
And that's where this other tailwind is actually turning all of this into a tornado. The other tailwind is generative AI because health systems recognize that they need tools to increase productivity, but somehow find a way to get that productivity increase while putting a smile on their labor, on on their staff's faces. Um, It's a really, really tough task. And at the end of the day, they need deflationary tools. They need tools that can truly scale, that can actually democratize value propositions that previously were were bottlenecked by, um, by, by, by services constraints. So that's where we are at this moment is like, how can you kind of bring together what OpenAI and, and, and ChatGPT has made mainstream, that sort of technology that every single C-suite executive now recognizes could be this incredible unlock. How can you bring them in and actually solve these pain points that healthcare is underwater for at this moment? It's a really interesting articulation of viewing this as a problem of productivity with a smile, because I think that often one of the refrains people have about inserting maybe too much technology in some of the human-centered domains is, well, you're missing out on the person. But as you've pointed out, there are a lot of rooms to plug in where for things doctors might want to do, or for certain interactions with patients, maybe more face-to-face time, more hearing the doctor's voice or getting messages back and forth from doctors, that's not necessarily more human interaction. So you pointed out that there is just a lot of administrative burden on doctors, on nurses. I think another kind of issue that's been pointed out in this is doctors often find themselves repeating themselves to patients, just the patient has a question and it's like, well, I've already answered this in your visit, but who who was taking notes back then? And so it's interesting, I guess, the way in which you can think of ways where you can make this a lot easier for everybody involved, but then you're not having to sacrifice that human component. Absolutely. I, I think what's fascinating about this kind of technology in healthcare is that it can make healthcare feel more human again. In a way, we're using this cutting edge technology to go back to the way healthcare was sort of idealistically practiced, you know, by our parents and their parents, like the home visits, like the the very personal relationships, because now all of a sudden there's time. So just to, you know, tell you a story about my own experiences using a bridge. So prior to a bridge, what would happen for me in clinic is I'd I'd come into the 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 patient room. And if it's a busy day, I'd turn on the computer. Sometimes I'd have my back to the patient. I'd be typing while they're talking, um, furiously clicking through orders and, and problem lists and, and writing their story at the same time. Oftentimes their story get going in one of my ears, out the other, because it's just impossible to multitask. Um, they're experiencing this clinician who doesn't seem fully present. They're maybe not telling their entire story. So maybe I'm also not getting all the information I need to make the best sort of clinical decisions. And then um, at the end of the visit, uh, I probably am leaving the room with a piece of paper where I've I've chicken scratched some information about them so that I can go back to my note later and fill in all the details. Sometimes that chicken scratch looks like something uh, along the lines of tall guy in the Mets hat, you know, something that's supposed to trigger all my memories, not just that night, but oftentimes that weekend when I find the time to go through all this clerical work and and get it done. What I optimize for, and I think this is like the case for all the doctors and nurses out there, is that you want to do the best by your patient. So you put their orders in, you do the things that are like absolutely mission critical, but anything that you perceive to be a part of the system's revenue cycles or the, the system's sort of you know, back office, you sort of deprioritize because it's less important than the patient's experiences and most importantly, the patient's clinical outcomes. And so that's why I think healthcare to date has been a lot of garbage in, garbage out from a machine learning perspective, because clinicians, doctors and nurses are just rushing through the data entry process so that they can get to the next patient that they need to care for. Now, enter this world of of having this technology and it's a completely different game because i walk into the room i see my patient i you know bring a bridge into the conversation i simply hit a button it's taking notes in real time and we're building that rapport i feel no hesitation to talk politics if they want to to talk about our families you know the great restaurant I live in Pittsburgh um, with the Carnegie Mellon kind of DNA, and we're probably going to talk about the Steelers for 10 minutes. It doesn't matter how the conversation flows. The technology 
job is to abridge it. It's going to find all of the signal wherever it was buried, take out you know the small talk, but find the signal that all the different constituents in healthcare care about, whether it's the providers, other care team members who need to see my note, understand how I made those decisions for that, for that patient, whether it's the, the, the payers or like the revenue cycle folks who need to see certain types of information coded in a certain way so that the hospital system can keep the lights on, whether it's related to the patient and actually giving them a summary where there isn't a term like transcatheter aortic valvuloplasty. Because I didn't say that to the patient. And when they see that in their note, as they should have access to their notes, they're going to call me for the next two weeks. And, and they're going to send me a whole bunch of like inbox messages asking like, well, what is that? You never said that term. It sounds scary. I just Googled it. So finding a way to, to leverage generative AI to actually create all of these different artifacts in one fell swoop and essentially in real time is what a bridge does. So I'm, I'm having better conversations with my patients. I'm more present. I'm listening to them. And we're building better relationships. And that's because, you know, I have this incredible luxury all of a sudden of, of really optimizing for what matters the most, you know, their, their experience. Once you've been able to improve the quality, the accuracy of clinical documentation, and importantly, as you said, that should not look the same for every audience. That does, in an ideal world, free up a lot of time for the clinical team. What do you view as, well, the clinical team has more time now, perhaps for doctors that looks like actually getting some sleep and not having to do 27 hours of work in 24 hours, assuming that this actually frees up more time that they might otherwise want to use productively. How do you view their roles evolving? I think that doctors are the OG care advocates. You know, they're, they're the original patient advocates. And you, you think about clinicians back in the day doing those home visits, the family doctor who knew you, who knows your parents, who knows your kids, like who really thinks about you from a very holistic perspective, understands your, your socioeconomic background, understands your preferences, understands what you're optimizing for, has the time to sit down with you and unpack those details to always make sure that you're headed in the direction that you want to go as opposed to what the system might assume you want to go. That's, I think, the paradigm that we're going back to with this technology, where you have the time and the space to build that rapport and improve the experience um, and make healthcare less sterile, actually more human. So uh, you talked about time savings. There's a, a doctor at University of Kansas, Greg Ader, um, incredible visionary, understands this space, understands how it's going to change healthcare. And when he started using it as an ENT doctor, he told us that this, this felt like the most significant thing since the stethoscope um, to him because he came out of a room and his note was essentially automated. And all he did was trust and verify that. And we've received feedback from him, but also other clinicians that they their workflow is shifting, but it's it's shifting in a really fascinating way where you're less preoccupied with all the clerical work that's sort of burdening you, that's going to crush your soul that night. You're more present and focused on your patient. You're listening in a different way. You're engaging in a different way, but you're also thinking through like the differentials, people say. Like you're actually more active and your critical apparatus is on in a different way where you're making better decisions, arguably. Now we need to demonstrate that. We need to prove that in clinical trials and we're already getting up um, into that sort of work. But that's really fascinating to me. You're, you're probably familiar with that company, Gong. Um, but think about Gong.io for healthcare. What does it mean to build technology that can not just improve documentation? And there's a three-letter acronym in, in healthcare for that, clinical documentation improvement. But what if we can swim upstream and talk about clinical conversation improvement? What if we're actually improving the encounters because we've just enabled people to operate at the top of their license? We've enabled patients, you know, all of us and our family members to be the healthiest versions of ourselves. That's what a bridge is, is trying to get at. Like that's, that's like um, North Star for us. That does seem like a really important vector for improvement. You've described the University of Kansas and your partnership with them, which I mentioned earlier, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how Abridge is helping different hospitals and some of the different partnerships that you have right now. 
Yeah, we can start with University of Kansas. So they have over 1,500 clinicians at the University of Kansas, reporting up to Dr. Ader, who I just mentioned, at um, over 100 locations, you know, clinics, and they've got hospitals as well, of course. There, they were able to kind of create this baseline of how many minutes doctors are spending per day on documentation outside of work. And it's something like a couple hours. What's fascinating about that metric, 130 minutes, is that we're receiving qualitative feedback in droves now that we're saving people up to two hours a day on, on documentation. What's um, been really exciting to see as well, and what we've been able to validate with, with rigorous research and, and R&D over the years, is that this technology is now at a place where it can scale across different specialties. So you think about primary care clinicians, for example, the front line from whom the specialty referrals might flow, and they're getting value. They're getting value with adults. They're getting value with 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 kids. They're getting value in person. They're getting value over, like this, you know, virtually. Um, you think about specialists. Doctor Ader's an ENT doctor. Um, there's a, a cardiologist at UPMC named Josh Levinson who told us he's saving up to two hours a, a day when he uses a bridge. So this is where w- what's so exciting about this technology is that the 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 impact that we can create we don't see a ceiling for it. Like it's really every single clinician and it's not just the doctors that I've been mentioning. It's also nurses who are getting that value. So, um, we're right now, I think by design over these years, we've been like setting the table to be able to go to these large systems, do rigorous work. There's a lot of academic sort of DNA in the company. And then think in healthcare, that's, that's, that's a, a real advantage because not only do we design our systems, you know, on the machine learning side, led by Zach Lipton in a very rigorous way in the way we benchmark, we measure, and we manage those results. We're always looking at data. On the clinical side, we're also thinking about trials, about demonstrating. In medicine, you know, the holy grail for me as a cardiologist is always the randomized control trial. I'm always looking for, for, to build trust in new medications and also new technologies. So that's the sort of like kind of like platform that we're trying to create across all of our different partners, whether it's University of Kansas, whether it's UPMC. Um, Very soon over the coming weeks, we're going to announce not just larger hospital systems, but actually in the next probably seven to 10 days, we're going to announce an incredibly inflecting data partner um, who in a a trusted way is going to give us the data that the internet hasn't seen, like the sorts of annotations on all of those workflows that are beyond the document so that we can start to assist, augment, and also in large part, automate those workflows as well. That sounds very exciting. One of the key things you mentioned in your response here was the importance of building trust. And as you pointed out, demonstrations, randomized clinical trials, these are very important for that. But when it comes to the specific applications of AI and healthcare, I think that there are a lot of questions about that. And bias in particular, I think, is one of those tortured subjects by this point in time, but still one that I find people have correct concerns about, especially when it comes to areas like healthcare, where small issues can make a pretty big impact in patient outcomes. And so I think that um, a lot of the earlier discourse I saw around this was when you're inserting algorithms into actual decision-making procedures, then issues like bias, issues like interpretability, those seem to matter a lot more. But in your space and generative AI, and you're trying to transcribe conversations, figure out what's important, it's maybe not quite the same as a decision-making algorithm, but still I find maybe an important venue to explore some of these things, especially with a lot of the issues people have brought up about bias kind of coming downstream when one is using foundation models, for instance, and so I'm curious how you think over some of these questions. I think uh, first at a really high level in healthcare, trust is table stakes. And, and we have another refrain like privacy is paramount. So all of our systems have to meet that highest threshold, regardless of who we're serving, whether it's like the largest national healthcare system in the country, whether it's a small clinic, you know, down the street, um, a private PCP sort of shingle office. When we think about trust, we think about reliability, we think about transparency, we think about credibility. We're a startup. And unlike a large company in this space, 
we can't put a press release out that's five years ahead of our skis. We can't tell stories to the market that aren't real today. And for us, without that luxury, not that we would ever exploit it, it's all about our word. What we say, what the promises we make, we need to deliver. And so positioning our product as something that can assist and augment is really important to us. Where we can automate, we'll be clear about that and we'll demonstrate in the data. But it's, it's, I think it's kind of silly to come in and say you can automate doctors. You know, there are a lot of chat PCP-ish sort of pitches that I've been hearing lately that make it seem as if there's this like large language model that's going to replace every clinician in the country. And even in our space, you're talking to a patient, I'd say half the time as a specialist, I'm leaving the room and I'm still grokking their story. I'm still thinking about things. I'm then calling other doctors and I'm trying to figure this out, like what should be the plan? I'm calling the patient back maybe a day later and, and trying to really understand their preferences in terms of um, what kind of treatments they'd be open to. There's so much art in medicine that I think people underestimate. There is so much that happens ahead of the clinical document that goes unsaid that people underestimate. And so being able to say that you just automated everything in healthcare, including the decision making that gets captured in a note, is, um, is a bit silly. And so we're not one of those startups. At the same time, we recognize the efficiencies that we can create. So we want to be very explicit with every single partner of ours of, of how we see this playing out over time. There, there's like a framework that we have in the company where think about decisions, like you brought up decisions, think about decisions on two axes. One axis is related to the stakes, high stakes decisions, low stakes. Another axis, maybe it's the Y axis, maybe think about like volume of the decisions um, that, that need to be made on a daily basis in a clinic. And in that high volume, high stakes sort of quadrant of that two by two, you're assisting at best. You are not augmenting. You are not automating per se. You got to be very humble in terms of like what your role is. So for a company that's doing clinical decision support, that's telling me what I should be prescribing, I think that technology and generative AI can be a thought partner. It can tell me, hey, we heard this patient has chest pain. Here's a potential differential. Did you think through those? And we see these gaps in terms of questions that you didn't ask. Amazing. I love that. However, and that's what we're about. But however, going farther than that and saying this is a pulmonary embolism, um, absolutely, and, and coding that, and then actually prescribing an anticoagulant against that or biasing the clinician to think it's that when the data that the LLM saw was flawed in the first place, it was just a bunch of MCAT questions or something. I'm just making that up. But like that's where things get really, really tricky and where humility becomes so important. I'd say if I've seen um, a fatal flaw of health tech startups over the last 10 years, one of them uh, at the top of my head is a lack of humility. When you think you can come in and kind of not have that rigorous academic lens in some way on on your product and the value that it can create you you're you're going to you're going to get caught one way or another and it and it and it should also be genuine um so at the same time you know when there's a low sort of risk for decisions and there's a lot of them that that are happening and that's the case in a lot of the workflows that we focus on that can go back office very quickly that's work that can be automated and there's an incredible opportunity for generative AI in healthcare to create, you know, like incredible efficiencies. And, and so that's, I think, probably where a lot of the work is going to get done over these coming months, um, you know, uh, in a world where it feels like all of a sudden we are mo moving decades in a day now in this industry. One of the issues that you brought up are things that you feel that a bridge and similar healthcare startups need to care a lot about is this question of transparency. And you and I did mention this earlier in the context of decision-making, and that's an area where it's been explored quite a lot. I think in the context of transcribing patient conversations and trying to figure out what is important in those conversations to service to various people, maybe the role for that is it seems a little bit less obvious on face what interpretability looks like in that situation. 
I guess there are the simple questions of, okay, how did the model determine that this is a set of important things, especially if you were trying to diagnose, hold on a second, the product we've built doesn't seem to be surfacing the right things to the right people. And so how do we diagnose that? That does seem like it's some, it's a more and more difficult question as time goes on and models that we might want to use get more complicated. And so in the context of a Bridges product, um, and perhaps also for other healthcare startups that might make want to make use of LLMs, how do you think about managing that question? Yeah. So the way we think about that maybe is is exemplified in the user experience of our solution today, deployed at, at large hospital systems, and that um, our, our technology is already being used by thousands of clinicians. And one of the key features that we've seen for the end user to build trust in our technology is the ability that we have in our UI to map every generated summary back to the ground truth. We also have in that UI an ability to sort of understand which parts of the conversation didn't get covered for some reason, which parts of the conversation did the did our models not deem as, as worthy of being in the note. And the infrastructure that we've developed is such that we're learning all the time. Um, it's seeing these annotations, these edits from the end users, clinicians, you know, medical professionals, and getting ahead of this. So one of the best compliments that I think we received from a different health system that we'll announce soon is that a bridge on Monday is different than a bridge on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And that's like the ultimate compliment, I think, because it's difficult to do that, especially in healthcare. And that's 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 what we're we're really trying to like you know um, optimize for here is just learning, like true learning on the fly and and improvements. One of the ways that improvements also get unlocked for us is in partnerships that unlock data sets that are higher up in the stack. There's a certain amount of data that an LLM is seen, for example, like a power tool LLM. Like, and there's a certain amount of data in healthcare that nobody's seen because, again, like the barriers to entry to get access to a lot of this data um, is very high. Like they're, they're going to be for all the right reasons on specific types of healthcare systems with specific types of, of privacy um, specifications. That said, in a trustworthy and in the right way, what we've been able to do is is partner with large companies who are creating those data sets that are higher up in the stack, that are, for example, beyond the note, or even in relation to the note, that we have been able to feed and will continue to feed into our models to stay ahead of not just doing a better job of creating the best possible note that reflects all the right information. And, you know, from a recall perspective, we're already well over 90% in terms of being able to pull out all the important information per our own stats. Um, But also always stay ahead of all the other topics that are going to be important for us um, in healthcare as we scale this across different types of populations, different types of clinicians, different types of patients. So um, I think it's a combination of those two things. Any more at a, at a really high level when you think about startups who are who are really AI centered, um, it does feel like every company in 2023 and beyond is going to be an AI company on some level. Like everybody can probably benefit from hitting an API like GVT. And I think there's two categories of companies now that are going to merge. There's companies that are leveraging APIs and um, like thin wrapper, but getting a lot of value from it. And at the same time, their moat is probably where their moat was before. Their differentiation, their defensibility, the durability of that company is probably where it was before, whether it's in like scale, distribution, you know, proprietary partnerships or, or something else. And on the other hand, there are AI native companies. And those are companies where you've got people like our chief scientific officer, Zach Lipton, and the other folks on our machine learning team and the, the folks on our engineering team working together with folks like me on the go-to-market side, or in the product side, and we're coming up with models that are above and beyond sort of what we can leverage from an, a commercial API. So we're building models that are underneath, that are beside these power tools, that are on top of these power tools. We're being mindful about which power tool for which problem, because there's so many different problems. And so for that homegrown stack, we at the end of the day, what do we need to deliver as a solutions company? In addition to being a science company, we have to make sure that we're delivering the best possible user experience. So whatever it takes, 
in healthcare, it's a, it's it's the kind of industry where because of the barrier to entry, there is real value in building those modules in in building models that can help the experience be more transparent. I'd say in some consumer spaces, maybe less value, right? Maybe it's more of a growth game first, like build something, put it out, the barrier to entry to a demo these days is lower than ever before, make some magic, but then your your defensibility is probably going to be, you know, somewhere else. Maybe it's in like a traditional network effect. The way you articulated an AI native company, as you said, does seem to inform a lot of the questions that we've been talking about. I think that there's kind of a key differential in the way that many people who might be in the ML space think about solving problems and the way that you might want that to manifest in the real world. There are a lot of researchers like Ben Green who have kind of pointed out the limitations of I am a computer scientist, that is what I am in the world, and that is how I therefore view the world. And so I have this kind of disconnected way in which everything around me I'm trying to articulate in some algorithmic manner. And I think that computer science, I think that algorithmic solutionism is the way to solve everything. But in a company like Abridge, I can imagine when you are coming from the perspective of, hold on a second, we have this primary thing we're trying to do. We're trying to deliver better patient outcomes. And you're starting from that vision and really bringing everybody together, the machine learning engineers, you, the CEO, actual doctors. Then you have more of an opportunity, it seems, to blend in, wait, there are different spaces. Like we're not trying to take this whole problem and stuff it into an algorithmic pipeline, but we're rather trying to figure out, as you've talked about through this conversation, where are particular inefficiencies And I think that also allows for some of the humility and the transparency that comes along with, we can see clearly where we can verifiably do things that will actually have good impacts for a customer. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's exactly that magic that has been core to our DNA at the company, this belief that putting the MD in the room with the machine learning PhD, with the, the designer, with the product person, and and finding out and discovering what you're working backwards from and holding that idea really, really tightly, and then figuring out how you get there. And it's exemplified, I think, in our data sets. You know, a lot of the data that we use to benchmark our, ourselves and our performance on a daily basis and that we put in front of our, our clients, our partners, comes from an exercise that began years ago where we aggregated the the largest relevant data set in the space of medical conversations, which happens to be the largest, most unstructured data set in healthcare. 80% of data in healthcare is unstructured, and this is upstream of even those notes that are inside the medical record. And after aggregating this very special data set, we annotated it in a certain way that you would not be able to get out if you didn't know if if you, if you didn't know what the product was going to look like, you know, in the future. And so it it, it sounds a bit counter to say lean startup like figure it out as you go and and um you know you'll get there someday if you just you know chase the like the 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 end user value and certainly that's part of the ethos here as well but on the ai side given that you have to plant seeds that sprout sometimes years later and that data sets clean data sets that you can use to just not just train models but benchmark yourselves are so mission critical you have to be thinking, you know, on a longer time horizon at any given time. You have to have that sort of T-shaped vision of your company where there's the vertical solution side, but then there's the horizontal part of your aspect of your company that very much has a science and R&D perspective on things. In keeping with that theme of science and R&D, I am curious about right now, as you said, we're at this really interesting intersection of generative AI technologies and that being a really good fit for some particular use cases in healthcare. A lot of people will speculate about the evolution of this, and I do think it's kind of important to be a little bit grounded about where things are going. I think I've heard far too many predictions that seem to go off the rails very quickly. So as somebody who has spent a lot of time between these two spaces, and I would imagine has probably a a more grounded take than most, What do you see as some of the other important ways that current AI systems and the ways they seem to be developing might might impact your space? Yeah. Value is moving up the stack really quickly. 
And I think people are already seeing where things are going. And I don't know that I don't know uh, that any of us understand how fast we'll get there. So, for example, we were just talking about clinical decision support use cases. And I remember when BioGPT came out, you could ask it if ivermectin, that medicine for for uh, for worms that some folks thought was good for COVID. Um, if you asked it if ivermectin was good for COVID, it would spit out, yes, absolutely. And here's some information on why. So there are guardrails that you need to create that we need to validate are actually useful depending on the use case that you go after. And in order to create those guardrails, you need data sets. Um, so whether it's clinical decision support, whether it's some, like, some back office revenue cycle sort of product, whether it's something related to you know risk adjustment on the payer side in healthcare, um, all of these different opportunities really, at the end of the day, they require really, really detailed data sets that the internet has not seen. And so being able to collect them and clean them up, aggregate them and, and continue to do what we did years ago for documentation, but build, build a system, build a machine that can automatically like learn um, with user feedback, with that reinforcement learning is I think mission critical for an AI native company, especially in an industry like healthcare where the stakes can be really high. One, one particular question on this I'm curious about too you just mentioned the technique of reinforcement learning from human feedback. And I think that one, one perhaps criticism, maybe not entirely criticism, but refrain people have about it is that really a lot of what the technique does is tune a model to tell you what you want to hear, as it were. And you can imagine that, of course, in certain applications, that's just not exactly what you want. So for, for the healthcare domain, I am a little bit curious how you think about the space of generative AI models and techniques and what feels kind of most appropriate to you for the types of applications that you're thinking about or that you imagine others might want to get into. Mm-hmm. So I think in industries like healthcare, the more control you have over your stack, the better, because that means you can you can tweak things over time to do a better job with whether it's precision, whether it's recall, whether it's something related to factual accuracy, like whatever, whatever the issue is, you can actually like look into the system and tweak those knobs and, and retrain and improve things over time. So in our company, we have models that actually try to extract information that's relevant, that's useful. And those models are not trained with like an end user's subjective sort of take on whether or not this sounds right. Um, this is the ground truth data that helps us train a classifier, for example, to pull out information related to the next steps of a conversation so that we can subsequently structure that data and map it back into the source systems in healthcare, like the medical record system. Um, where an LLM can be very useful and where reinforcement learning can be useful is, um, for example, on the documentation side, it can be useful in relation to making sure that the note sounds like you as the, as the provider, that it sounds like the type of, of note that any doctor, med student, nurse would recognize stylistically as, as trustworthy. You know, like there's a, there's a sort of aesthetic to a clinical note that an LLM can absolutely uh, do an incredible job of. Um, so I think this is where you got to be really careful about like, how do you apply different technologies in different places and, and where do you go into actually building your own stack versus leveraging something else? And what do you need to build upstream of, of commercial power tools if you're using them, um, if you're not in the open source world. So when I think about RLHF in relation to some back office, uh, workflow, there's certainly got to be a lot of rigor in relation to, how you're framing the challenge for those humans who are giving feedback. But if the feedback they're giving is relatively, you know, objective, like uh, the patient, like, you know, output says that the patient has high blood pressure and actually that should be framed as hypertension because that word actually maps better 
to a specific ontology in healthcare that unlocks all of these efficiencies downstream, then that's relatively face, uh, you know, safe feedback that we can get. If the feedback is much more qualitative and stylistic, then I think that's where, and, and you know, aesthetic, if you will, that's where you got to be really careful. Uh, about not sort of steering the model to a direction that isn't where, you know, healthcare is is trying to go, which is to, at the end of the day, it's trying to go to better experiences, but most importantly, to better outcomes. I think as uh, perhaps a, a last question for this whole section, in specifically the space of clinical documentation, so we've spoken about some of the broader ways in which generative AI might start to impact things. We've already talked a little bit about some of the value that a bridge is deriving right now and some of the clear cost and time savings that implies. Are there any other sorts of innovations and improvements that you imagine on the horizon that just seem kind of fundamentally different from what we're chasing after right at this moment? So thinking like sort of beyond documentation, thinking about like healthcare, a little bit more macro yeah. and what the generative AI opportunities are. Mm-hmm. One way to kind of like try to frame opportunities, at least in the healthcare delivery space, uh, is is in relation to like what the workflows look like. Like what happens when you get sick? You go to a hospital, they assign you a medical record number. And there's a whole bunch of infrastructure related to how they assign that to you, how they identify you, how they solve for like identity in healthcare. Then beyond that, a nurse, a med student maybe sees you first, then, then like the attending doctor potentially. And they're going to write a note and they're also going to put orders into the CPOE, into the order entry system within their medical record system. Those orders, whether for medications, whether for, for diagnostics, are going to now flow through to pharmacy systems. Those systems are going to accept those orders, that they're going to adjudicate them against your insurance. Um, they're then going to figure out how they can fill them and how much they're going to cost for you. And then they're also going to flow, all that information is going to flow to like imaging systems, for example, if you're supposed to get a CT scan or an MRI, and they're going to look through your medical history, see if you've got any metal in your body that would delimit your ability to have a certain type of MRI, for example. So a lot of stuff happens there. Those meds get filled, but those, those images end up getting generated um, get, they get captured, I should say. And then moving beyond that, there's data that flows back to the care team that allows them to put it all together and decide what are the next steps. Because at the end of the day, what clinical teams are doing is they're creating prototypes in their mind of like, who are you like coming in with this problem and what's the potential differential and what 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 treatment plan should we try first? And then when we get data back, depending on how, and that could be on the order of hours or weeks, if you're an outpatient, we're going to then decide how we're going to either pivot or persevere. So then um, beyond that, there's coding and there's revenue cycle, there's billing, there's all all that infrastructure that um, certainly any number of, of systems in healthcare already today um, have done an incredible job of, of being able to optimize. And then, you know, um, that's sort of like the end of the story. And then like your longitudinal patient record could be siloed or it could be connected from not just the urgent care you went to, but also the hospital system that you're going to go to in a couple of years. So thinking that you can take any one of those modules and care delivery, unbundle it, make a cheaper, better, faster version of it, and then transform healthcare is, it sounds good, but that's just not the case. And it's not the case because the barriers to entry in healthcare are different. It's also not the case because of that chessboard that we talked about. Um, in this conversation where there's so many different players in healthcare and 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 potentially misaligned incentives. And so you need to like thread these needles in order to make things work. But also just from like a technological perspective, you have to get back into those workflows. You have to find a way to integrate. You have to w- find a way to, to, to make this, especially for a generative AI company, seamless, like the integration. And so that's where I think we're going right now, like with the the coming months and years, I think what we're going to see is a lot of generative AI centered solutions that you might not even know are actually like a part of your workflow that are operating in the background. It, it would seemingly seem like that are that are like kind of like air, really good air conditioning and your workflows are going to improve, but you're not necessarily being taken into this other spot. Um, it's just in in the systems that you're currently using today, potentially, 
um, and creating those efficiencies in that way. That does seem like the ideal way to implement a lot of these technologies. There's always the refrain that when you are moving from something old to something new in whatever domain, there's always going to be a point of friction in adapting to a new user interface in getting used to an entirely new workflow if you have to adapt at all. And so there is always this question of, well, does the improvement in experience that I have overcome the friction it took for me to get there? And so in healthcare, I I imagine where people already have these very well-set workflows, as you're saying, what you really want to do is to make the innovation almost invisible. It's like nothing seems different to me and what I'm doing. This just happens to work a lot better. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, and, and it takes, that's where I think like that sort of capital D design point of view comes in, like the UX research. And like when when you're creating that value that requires an interface, then I think you need to just sort of justify the value proposition of why they needed to adjust their workflow. Because um, otherwise, at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is, and in healthcare, and especially in relation to the problem that we're solving, we're trying to make help you just have more of those human interactions and less interactions with technology. So yeah, it's it's like a really exciting challenge, but I think that's that's the opportunity for generative AI right now. One thing I've observed through this conversation with you, and I think contrasting that with a lot of the discourse that is going on in the AI sphere right now is that especially when it comes to the applications of ML and healthcare, as you've articulated, it's very important to be grounded, to be humble. And I do notice that groundedness and a lot of the way you think about this. I do think that contrasts quite starkly with even the way some AI researchers have thought about its applications to the life sciences, to healthcare. Jeffrey Hinton is said to have proclaimed that AI would replace radiologists over a few years. And very clearly that hasn't happened. But I, I am just curious to hear your thoughts, if you'll allow me to, to drag you out of this grounded space a little bit on perhaps um, why some people seem to make these predictions that seem so wild, even people who are very well known in the AI space, and how that kind of contrasts with a lot of the realities that you see on the ground. We're watching what's going on with, with screenwriters right now. And there's no question that generative AI can impact, you know, how we think about the future of work. And I don't want to downplay that at all. Um, I think when I think about this space and, and specifically healthcare on any reasonably uh, reason, reasonable sort of time horizon, there is so much opportunity to augment, to automate right now that in any near term, what we're going to be doing is making it feel better for everyone involved, like for the people who matter most. And this this risk of actually making it worse seems um, overblown to me because there are there's so much complexity in healthcare. We don't have enough people to do all the work. And we just have this like shortage issue, like, and, and so finding ways to leverage technology and then, and allow those people, those skilled workers to do other things in the workflow, to create other kinds of value, um, really starts to unlock. I think, for example, about a program from Medicare some years ago called Health Quality Partners, where Medicare sent humans to people's homes just to sort of sit down with them talk to them, go through what happened to them in the hospital and what they're supposed to do next for the discharge instructions. And that more than any fancy big data analytics initiative at the time, moved the biggest needle on readmissions and long-term outcomes. But Medicare's problem was they couldn't scale it. It's expensive and they didn't have the people. There's, there's just not enough people out there to go visit every person's home. So they end up sort of prioritizing who are the people who are the highest risk, who are the highest cost to the system, and only they can get access to this incredible service. So in this new world with like with healthcare, where generative AI can do all this clerical work that nobody wants to do, um, now all of a sudden the people who used to do that work can move up the stack 
And it's possible they'll need new kinds of skills. It's possible it won't be everybody who can kind of visit people's homes and have that great conversation about next steps and help them improve their health literacy and then better understand and follow through. But that's the opportunity is to move everyone up the stack here. That makes a lot of sense. What I see from the way you've articulated things when it comes to automation, augmentation is I, I, I feel when people were thinking about automating away the jobs of potentially healthcare workers a while back, what they were looking at automating was maybe a more limited form of what the capacities of the person in that job could actually do. And once companies like Abridge, like other healthcare companies, actually release them from a lot of the burdens that I think will allow them to do more useful work, both for themselves and for their patients in particular, then I, I would imagine that what you start to see is something quite different. You're enabling the human doing the job a lot more. And maybe the question of, oh, this is just a job we can totally automate away starts to look pretty different. Do you, do you kind of see it that way too? I do. I think like it comes down to we're, just, we're misusing the medical workforce. We're asking them to do things they didn't go to school for that isn't the, the, their calling. You know, like we're asking them to do clerical work wherein they could be making great clinical decisions. And so allowing them to op operate at that quote unquote top of their license is something that we can do and, and like a space where we just have incredible amounts of work to do to be able to really get into like the other, the other aspects of risk that I think we're already starting to jump into um, thinking about. Like, I don't think we're there yet. We have a lot of green space here to create a lot, incredible amounts of value for people first. I think this is a good place for a closing question. So as somebody who spent a long time in these spaces, what would you say are maybe for people who are coming from the AI space and curious about its applications to healthcare, or maybe people coming the other way around, people who are in healthcare and want to explore and understand where AI might or might not fit in to either their workflows or things they might want to build for others. How, how would you recommend people start exploring that intersection? And I guess, what would you see as the most promising ways for, for them to start getting into that? Well, I, I think that now more than ever before, the the barrier to just like learning more about any given space is lower than ever before. So that that ability to to just absorb as much information, whether it's about the state of AI today or the state of healthcare today, um, is just like incredible. And I think given what's happening in healthcare, given how historic this moment feels, where there's these pain points where we stretch the system as far as it can go, and we now need some relief and where technology can be that relief. Um, we need more people to sort of see the opportunities and connect dots across both disciplines and and come up with solutions that can really like, you know, that can create value and like just change the game. So I, th I think like that, those people are gonna like find ways to connect those dots one way or another. I think those people are also going to find ways to to complement themselves with other experts, um, and you know, create those sorts of ideas. Come up with those sort of like multidisciplinary sort of you know projects that end up being like the most valuable. Like you put you put together that deep healthcare person with that very deep you know AI person in a room, and there's going to be magic that will come out of that. There's going to be opportunities that come out of that. And so now more than ever before, like now's the moment for people to, to, to go like, you know, like focus on healthcare because like before, you know, you could have the best technology, the best solution. And you, you probably, it probably had no, nothing to do like zero to do with your ability to create impact. And that's, what's changing right now at this moment, healthcare, health systems, CEOs of largest of the largest systems that sometimes were the slowest to move. They need technology right now and, and they're open. They want to try things. They want to test things because they need relief. Um, and so that's an opportunity all of a sudden, maybe, you know, for the first time in any number of years for the best products, like the best technologies, the best user experiences to actually win. Um, and and that's, that feels incredibly historic because on the other side of this moment, what, what's healthcare going to look and feel like? 
it could look amazing. It look, it could feel amazing for, for all, all of us as patients, for, for our family members, for all the healthcare professionals. Um, but we got to take advantage of this moment. Um, we got to take advantage of the public health emergency. We have to address it. And we, we have to recognize that technology is going to be central to our way out of it. You've painted a really exciting picture of the future. I think this is a good place to end. And so I'm very excited to see your and Abridge's role in the creation of that future. And I, I appreciate a lot about your perspectives on many of the questions that we discussed today. I find that you're not at all diminishing the value of this moment, but at the same time, you're very grounded in what's feasible, what's actually happening. And I think that that is a, a sorely needed and incredibly valuable perspective among a lot of the discourse today. So I do want to thank you for that and for being so generous with your time and speaking with me today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to continue chatting with you over time. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.